is a uh, is a special time. Um, Americans um, uh, reach into their closets to find flags and other patriot uh, kinds of things. It's a time that we set aside to remember those who have lost their lives uh, for our freedom. It's a time of um, picnics and parties and get-togethers and barbecues and, uh, hey, uh, I mean, uh, uh, it's a time of celebration um, for what we have. And the thing about freedom is, is, is that living in America and knowing our history and how we became a nation and all that, we understand that freedom is not free. Um, it is a privilege, and I fear that many young people live in a world where the expectation is freedom is guaranteed. And it's part of being American is being free, but it's not. Freedom is something that has to not only cost someone that we might have, but it's also something that continually has to be fought for. Even within our own shores, um, we have to keep fighting for freedom. There are, there are things that are going on even in our own nation that are about freedom. Uh, what the government can say to uh, a company who, uh, Hobby Lobby, which is a Christian organiza- a Christian-led organization, and they have specific things that go against their religious conscience, and the government says, you can't do that. Well, there's a, that's a freedom that's been trying to take away. You have to fight that. Can't allow those freedoms to be taken away. And so Memorial Day, on the one hand, is a time of, of, of celebrating, but it's a time of reflection and remembering that freedom is not free, that we don't have this amazing nation that we have because someone just said, hey, let's just do it like this. No, there were a lot of lives lost uh, as a result of this. We, uh, for those uh, who, who are black, we understand that the freedoms that we have, uh, that didn't come easily. That didn't come cheaply. Uh, we have a black president right now, and, and that only happened because a lot of people lost a whole lot, and a lot of people lost their lives for the sake of freedom. Um, and so, you know, we can all relate to that. Um, and uh, so it's a reminder of that. But, uh, you know, the book of Exodus, because I was thinking, you know, where are we going to go after we just did Genesis? And I, and and someone asked me last week, are we, are we going to have service next week now that we're done with Genesis? I said, well, I'll be here, bro. By the way, he's not here. But anyway, that's another story. And, uh, uh, but I just thought, well, let's go into Exodus. Let's just keep right on rolling and uh, see what the Lord does. Uh, we'll get, uh, I think we'll go a little bit faster through Exodus than we did Genesis, though, uh, because I really kind of want to, uh, I think this is an appropriate book. And, um, you know, what's often true in the physical realm is, awful, is, is also true in the spiritual realm. Not always, but often. Uh, you know, we were once in bondage. We were once enslaved. We were um, once held captive too. And I think the greatest deception that Satan has is when he's got you on lockdown and you don't even know it. I mean, you think you're all that and you think you're the man or the woman and you're this and you're that. And the whole time you're, you're, you're in a chokehold by Satan and he's slowly sucking the life out of you till the day that you die when you meet him face to face, you know, and I think, I think, so we were once in bondage, we were once sla- enslaved in, into the world system, the world's way of thinking, and the world is defined as that which is opposite of Christ, it's a philosophy, it's an evolutionary mindset that says we came from primordial ooze, by the way, if you didn't go see God's Not Dead, it's a great movie to go see. It really is. Number three this weekend in the box office. Number three. Uh, and so, uh, you know, hey, 
There's, you know, Hollywood's finally getting it. People actually want to see movies with redeeming quality and even, dare I say, Christian content. Whoa! Let me tell you what speaks in Hollywood. Money. So you can expect to see some more Christian film. You know, Hollywood is Hollywood, and they can be as, as, as whatever they want to be. But when it comes to the almighty dollar, they're all, oh, hey, listen, hey, if Pilgrim movies are hot, let's do Pilgrim movies. They don't care. <laughs> they just want the money. Anyway, that's the world way of thinking, the world system. We were enslaved to that. We were enslaved to the world. We were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to our own selfish desires. Uh, we are enslaved to Satan and his minions. Uh, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And if you have an enemy that wants to kill you and you don't know it, you're going to die. You don't even know that. I, you know, I was blinded to me. I thought I was a, a good guy. Uh, on a scale of goodness and badness, I thought I was a pretty good guy. But, you know, I was lost in my sins and my trespasses. Uh, I committed cosmic treason against God by denying Jesus Christ and not really wanting a relationship with him at all, denying the power of God. And I was enslaved to that. But praise the Lord, Galatians 2 says this. In the New Living Translation, it says, Paul speaking to the church in Galatia says, And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. Amen? That's true. But until you come out of it, you don't know it. You know, sometimes you can look back at things and you can say, you know what, I did not realize how bad it was until I got out of it. And then I looked at it and I went, man, I can't believe I was that deep or it was that bad or I was so, you know, nasty or whatever, you know. That's the way verse 4 says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that we could, he could adopt us as his very own children. And so our freedom, our spiritual freedom, came at great cost. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't like God said, I declare spiritual freedom. No, no. Well, he declared it in eternity past, but Jesus had to come. He had to die. He had to be brutally beaten and crucified and die a sinner's death. Roman Roman citizens weren't even allowed to die the way that Jesus died. You could not crucify a Roman citizen, but you could crucify a Jewish carpenter who claimed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Okay? And so our freedom in Christ was not cheap. This was not some little thing that just God deemed one day, and we just kind of, we kind of, okay, I agree with God that I need. No, no, it cost, it cost Jesus his life. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him." So our sin is transferred onto him. My sin, symbolically transferred onto him at the cross. Well, Exodus, Exodus is, it literally means exit, departure, or going out. It's the record of Israel's birth from a family of 70 people to over 2 million in some 430 years. (laughs) Um, The family started off at five people back in the city of Haran. If you've been with us for a while, we studied that. Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Zilpha, Bilhah. 
And it grew into a clan of about 100 people in 50 years, and plus a uh, uh, well, there's a few, a few more of that. Um, and it grew uh, at a growth rate of 6%. Uh, they can estimate that there would have been several, mil- several million people by the time we get to the end of Exodus. So what started off as a group of 70 people in 430 years was some 2 million to 3 million people. Okay? Now, remember, if you'll turn back to Genesis chapter 12, verse uh, 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, says this. God's promise to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's creating a, 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 a family and then a nation and then a people group that will one day bring forth Jesus, the Messiah, and they would be a blessing to the entire earth. Now go to chapter 15, verse 13 and 16. So that's the good news. You're going to inherit all this land. You're going to be a great nation. You know, b- b- those who will bless you will be blessed. By the way, it's still, I think it's a good principle to bless the nation of Israel because God said so. Those who bless you will be blessed. You know, America, listen up. We need to bless Israel. You know, not just because they're a strategic ally in the Middle East, but, you know, hey, that's, it's, it's got a spiritual connotation to it. God said that. All right, Genesis 15, verse 13 through 16. So there's the good news. Verse 13 says, And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. 400 years of, of being enslaved and oppressed. But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here. Speaking of those who are oppressed, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And, and just a little quick note on that. The Amorites were a group of people that were seeped in sin, and God gave them 400 years to come to him, and they never did. And so, therefore, he judged the land. And when we get to the end of Exodus and, and, and really the, 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 the first five books, and we may not go through the whole five books, but when we jump into Joshua, uh, you know, God's going to use these young people to, to execute judgment on, on these people, the, the, the iniquity of the Amorites. 400 years they had to get it right. God's merciful. God gives you time. Folks, listen. No, you don't know. You're, you're not promised tomorrow, but God will give you time to come to him. He's the ultimate. You know how, as a, as a father, as a parent, you know how patient you have to be with your kids sometimes? You just have to be patient. There are times you just want to explode because of what they just did. Like, you did not just do that, right? But, but, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe it's just a dad thing. I don't know. You have to take a deep breath and go, Okay, I am not going to go absolutely crazy right now. I'm just going to relax and just exercise patience. How much more the ultimate father, God, 
who wants none to perish but all to come to life. We'll give you chance after opportunity. You know, it wasn't until I became, you know, you look back. You you know, when I became a Christian, I've told you this before. I look back at all the times God visited me. It's like he supernaturally brought them to mind. I mean, chance encounters with people, things that people said to me, God conversations that I had. I didn't even know they were God. I mean, I wasn't even looking for, I was not looking for God at all, (laughs) at all. And, And yet I remember those conversations. I remember them. It's crazy. Anyway, hey, 400 years, they didn't get it. And so the book of Exodus is the story of glory through redemption and restoration. Glory through redemption and restoration. In Exodus, we'll see all kinds of types and shadows. You know what a type and shadow is. It's like a preview. Like when you go to a movie and it starts at noon, but you know you have till about 12, 10 because they show the what? The previews. And the preview is what's to come, like the movie Noah, right? That's, we saw the previews of Noah coming, Russell Crowe. Hey, I love, Russell, I love me some Russell Crowe, but I'm not so sure if I want him doing theology, okay? So I'm not so, so, you know, I'm sure the special effects will be tight, but I don't know. You know, I think if I go see that movie, Noah, I'm going to go knowing I'm going to be entertained. I'm not looking for scriptural, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not looking for it to line up to the Word of God. I'm sure there's a whole lot of poetic license in that. But, you know, we can chew on the grapes and spit out the seeds. And then we can say, man, wasn't the ark strong or something? I don't know. But, hey, Russell Crowe, I mean, come on. Anyway. So types and shadows. Pharaoh represents our enemy, Satan, and powers and principalities that work with him. Egypt is symbolic of the world. There's an old song that used to say, Lord, you took me out of Egypt. Now take Egypt out of me. (laughs) Moses would be a symbolic or a picture or a type of Christ, our deliverer. The desert is a, is a type or, or a, a shadow of, of the wilderness experience and trials and tribulations. The Red Sea, symbolic of baptism or renewal and, and, and new birth. Crossing over the Jordan is a picture of crossing over into salvation or crossing over into, into uh, eternal life with Christ. Canaan represents the promised land. And the kingdom of God, as the children of Israel are wa- going to wander through the wilderness, they'll be led by a, a, a pillar of uh, smoke and a, a, a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire. That represents the Holy Spirit who leads people on our faith journey. We'll get to the Passover. We're probably not going to get there by Easter. I don't know. We probably won't. Uh, but the Passover uh, uh, will, will symbolize the cross. The Passover lamb will symbolize or is, or is a type or shadow of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they had to take the blood of the lamb and apply it onto the doorpost uh, of their homes. And anyone who did that, their, their, uh, the, the angel of death would pass over them. And in the same way, we have to apply the blood of Christ to the doorpost of our hearts symbolically so that the angel of death will pass over us and we have life eternal. And so one of the key words that we'll, we'll see is, is redemption in this book. And redemption means to be bought back. It was a literal word that was used when a slave was on an auction block and someone purchased that slave, they redeemed them. Okay, and so that word redemption is all through, is what Exodus is all about. We'll see Moses who is redeemed from the Nile River. We'll see Israel who is redeemed from Egypt. We'll see God doing his redemptive work in the tabernacle. And that's really the main theme of the Bible. Uh, the, the Bible is 66 books, but it's one story. And the, and the main story of the Bible is what? What do you think? 
the main, the, the main if, you, if someone says, just give me the story of the Bible in one sentence, what would you say? Jesus, salvation. Hey, first and foremost, it's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of God. And then secondly, it is about God's, God's ridiculous love for mankind and, and, his, and his attempt to rescue and bring them back to him. That's redemption. Uh, his, his, his crazy, and I, I don't even know words to describe the love that God has. It's one thing to love someone who, who loves you back. It's a whole other thing to love someone who disrespects you, who doesn't want to be with you, who could care less what your word says, and to still love them with equal. That's love. That's God's love. God's love. God redeeming mankind back to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the book of, of Acts um, or the Gospels are, are, the, are the Acts of Jesus. Uh, the book of Acts is, are, are the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the book of Exodus is the Acts of God. Because there are more miracles mentioned in Exodus than any other book. <sighs> well, God is about to execute his plan or the next step in his plan in the book of Exodus. If you remember back in, 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 in Genesis when we finished off, Joseph has died, and, and he tells them to, to take his body with him. He was embalmed in Egypt. You know that Joseph was, was Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, he was embalmed in Egypt, and, and he knew he was dying. And he said, you know what, make sure you take, don't leave me here. Take me back to Canaan, to the land that God has promised us. Take me back there. Carry my bones up out of here. And, uh, and he dies. And, 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 and so now we step into the next step. You know? And here's the thing about God. God always has another step. Always. Because he knows the beginning from the end. See, he doesn't, he doesn't have to read the book. He already knows how it begins and how it ends. And, and he, he knows our life. He knows us from our beginning to our end, and he always did. We don't know tomorrow. We wish we did. People pay a lot of money to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow. Hey, trust in the Lord with all your heart, <laughs> you know. Don't lean on your own understanding. Uh, uh, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Just take care of today because there's enough, what, worries about. People spend a lot of time worrying about tomorrow. That doesn't mean don't plan. It just means don't worry about tomorrow. And we like to worry. But God's got a plan. He's got a next step. And Exodus is the next step. It's going to be 430 years beyond where we left off. So, so you have to keep that in mind. Well, God's about to do something because he always has uh, uh, the next step in mind. He always has the goal in mind. There's always a goal. God always has a purpose. I was watching this today. It was so crazy. I was trying to get out of the house, and I, my kids had on ESPN 3030, and it was a story on the 1983 North Carolina State team uh, that uh, beat uh, uh, Houston Phi Slamma Jamma. Are you guys basketball fans at all? Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. Okay, good. I can go on. I just need one, even if it's me. You know, they were supposed to lose. There's no way they're going to beat Phi Slamma Jamma, Clyde Drexler, Clyde the Glide, all that. No way. And, and, and anyway... When the coach of North Carolina State, Jim Valvano, took over the program, he said this. He's, uh, one of his players said, because he, he died of cancer, but, but they said once a month they would have, they would, they would practice. I've never heard this before. Once a month 
they would practice cutting down the nets. In practice. Because he said, you like that. He said, one day we are going to win a national championship. He goes, I'm going to. I will, one day I'm going to win it. And, and so he says, so today, guys, let's practice cutting down the nets. And the guys are like, what? Okay, put up the ladder. Now, are you guys going to be excited or not? Well, look at you. you act, you're supposed to be, ex- we're practicing for when it happens. And they'd, they'd climb the ladder. They'd cut down the nets and, and, and pretty soon. But, but here's what he was doing. He was instilling something in them. And he was thinking, this is the goal. This is the goal, guys. The goal is not to play well, play. The goal is to win a national championship. That's the goal. So if we're going to win a national championship, let's practice cutting down the nets. And the players thought he was crazy. And then they started to get it. They started to get it. And, and, and you know what? If you remember, they won a national championship. And they beat Houston. Kim Olajuwon, and, five, and, and that was five slamma jamma. They, they won, and they cut down those nets. Hey, that's just a man. How about God? God always has, a, has, a, has the end in mind. He always knows what the next step is. He knows what he wants to do in us. And so it might not be a bad idea for us to start practicing, cutting down the nets, whatever that means. Whatever that means. Maybe that means if you pray for rain, you bring an umbrella. Maybe if, if, that, if, that, if that means you, 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 you believe in God for something, you step out in faith. People think you're crazy. What are you doing? I don't believe God's going to do this, so I'm going to step out in faith. I don't know. It's interesting, okay? Uh, he always has a next step. I guess the question is whether or not we'll join him in what he's doing. You can probably look back at your walk with Jesus and say, you know what, God has always prepared you for the next place he has for you. You didn't know it at the time, but God was preparing you for the next place he had for you. And you know what else? He also prepares that place for you, too. He prepares you, and he prepares the place. And if we follow with him, we'll show up at that place. That'll take a step of faith into the unknown, faith that he knows what he's doing. Listen, it's not always easy for those in slavery to leave. Especially when that's all they've ever known. I promise you, I delayed coming to Christ because slavery and sin was all I knew. And the thought of being free from that was a little scary because I didn't know what that meant. So it was easier to be a slave because that came naturally to me. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the and it and it amplified Bible, a new creature altogether, a new creation. And he says the old, the previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. And behold, the fresh and new has come. I like that. New American Standard says the fresh and the new has come in Christ Jesus. Just like that, 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 that grave that Christ died in was symbolic of death and, and, and Satan winning. And it was symbolic of failure. And that tomb is empty. The grave is empty. 
It was fresh, you know, with life. Okay, multiplication. Are you with me so far? You doing, are we doing okay? Do we need to turn the air on or anything? You guys good? It's a little warm in here. Is it warm? Is it? It is? It's not. Yeah, it is. See, see, all the, la- all the ladies are going, no, no, and all the men are going, yeah, man, it's hot in here. So we have this argument uh, at my house all the time. There we go. Because I, I want you to get this. You got you to hang with me. This is important. I know what you're thinking. Oh, my goodness, we haven't even got to Exodus yet. We're just getting started. No, we're not. I, 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 I promise you that. Okay, everybody say multiplication. All right, go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. It says this. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They each came, one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful. Everybody say fruitful. And increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Okay, they are filling up the place. (laughs) Um, They're different than the Egyptians. They are. See, they believe in one God. The Israelites were wanderers for the most part. They were shepherds and they lived to the north of all the cultic and the occultic uh, worship uh, uh, and religious rites uh, practices of the Egyptians. So they were physically separated, which was a good thing. The Egyptians, on the other hand, have many gods. We'll see by the time we get to the plagues that every one of those plagues that God levied against Egypt was against one of their gods. They believed the Nile was a god. And so God said, okay, I'm going to turn your god to blood. Boom. They believed frogs were gods. I mean, come on, frogs. Gnats, hail, the sun. Oh, we'll get to that. They believed that because they were a polytheistic country. Many, many, many gods. Uh, They were deep-rooted in their culture, the Egyptians were. And they were builders. Uh, And, you know, hey, there's some pretty cool things they built, too, by the way. Okay, so uh, now uh, multiplication, and we'll see that term again. Now everybody say affliction. Okay, Pharaoh was afraid that these people were a threat to him. Uh, slaves were used in almost every nation uh, as a way of conquering people. You conquer people, you make them slaves. That way they know that you're, you're greater than them, you're stronger than them. Um, but then slaves, there were di- many different kinds of slaves. Some were in the mud pits, some were carpenters, some were craftsmen, some were skilled workers. But whatever the case, they were still slaves. They were still in bondage. And, and they had taskmasters whose job was to make sure that they kept working and working hard. So if you think about it, why would Pharaoh be so concerned about a bunch of slaves like overtaking their nation? Before we get to the scripture, we'll read what it says in Psalm 105, 23 through 25. Psalm 105, 23 through 25 says, Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Egypt, the land of Ham. <clears throat> By the way, you know that for the most part, the Egyptians were, were African 
people. Uh, years ago, I was walking through the Luxor with uh, one of my one of my mentors, um, and uh, he is a he is a, um, a, a has his doctorate degree in African studies and things like that, and he does a lot of teaching about about the, the movement of the gospel through African American culture. And um, uh, Dr. Carl Ellis, uh, he wrote a book called Thug Christianity. Yeah, I like that title, Thug uh, Christianity. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, we were walking through the Luxor, and I just happened to notice the painting on the wall, and all the Egyptians were very light skinned. And and I and, and I just you know just walking through, I said, I said, Dr. Ellis. Uh, what do you see over there? And he said, I see the same thing that you see. I see the whitening of Egypt. Because a lot of the history books, they didn't want to tell people. This is a part of just the prejudice that happened in America. They didn't want to tell people that that ancient civilization was an African civilization for the most part. Um, Anyway, whatever the case, um, it says, Israel also came in uh, into Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, who was the, who was that son of, of, of Noah that uh, was the progenitor of the African people. Verse 24 says, There the Lord greatly increased his strength and made him stronger than their oppressors. He turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Now, let, let me just real quick, verse 24 says, There the Lord greatly increased his people and made them stronger than his oppressors. So now we know that Pharaoh was not just concerned about the size, but concerned about the strength of these people. But verse 25 says, God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people. Isn't that interesting? God did that. God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people and deal craftily with his servants. Because God was writing a script. And the king's heart is in the Lord's hands, like the water in the channels. He directs it wherever he wants. Interesting. Now, if we go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, it says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Oh, that's not good. There's a new sheriff in town. Joseph who? And he said to his, to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And in the event of war, they also join themselves in those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. Listen, the Lord did that. The Lord put that in his heart. Okay, I want you to remember that. Verse 11, So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, uh, uh, Pithom and Ramses. Okay. Yikes. Now, verse 12. Watch this. You might want to circle this if, if you like to circle. Bible. If it's one of our Bibles, please don't circle it. No, go ahead. It's all right. That's fine. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Okay. Christians have a tendency to do that. The more that you afflict them and oppress them, the more they grow. That is a spiritual uh, formula. Uh, With persecution of the church comes growth. The greatest movement of the church is typically something that happens during the times of greatest persecution. That's why China is out of control with Christians. 
You have a communist government that will not allow Christianity in the free form. The only form they will allow is the three-self church. And in the three-self church in China, it is illegal to talk about the resurrection, to talk about miracles, and to talk about the virgin birth. So what are you going to talk about on Easter and Christmas? And it is monitored. So there is this massive underground church of multiplied millions of people. And the more that the church is persecuted, the more it will grow. It is a spiritual formula. When Christ in me, the hope of my glory, becomes a reality in you and me, and when our battle cry is to live as Christ and to die as gain, when that's our battle cry, the result is revival every time. Early church father Ignatius said this, Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. That's revival, folks. That's going to stir everybody up. That's going to get people fired up. St. Francis of Assisi said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, what that means is this. If there's difficult places where the gospel hasn't penetrated yet, someone needs to go and maybe die. But that death will bring revival because that's a spiritual principle. So, Verse 13, the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor. But I say hard labor. Let me tell you what. When you are Israelite in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 1, when it says hard labor, that was hard labor. And you could, you could like, you know, try to revolt. You could try to get mad and say, man, we're we going to unionize, and, and we're not going to have, oh, oh ain't going to be none of that, <laughs> Because you, you're not just going to build a building. You're going to be part of the foundation. <laughs> we don't care about you. I mean, it was hard, hard, hard labor. Did I mention to you that God did this? God did this. Okay, God did this. Okay. Now, um, verse 15 through 21. Wow. Wow. This is amazing. Wow. Ah. <sighs> says, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Who are the midwives? The birth mothers. What do they call them today? The women who help midwives. Sorry. I was thinking, I was searching for some other name. Like, she's midwives, right? (laughs) Obviously, we had our babies in a hospital (laughs) with a doctor. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shurfa. Uh, Shifra, I'm sorry, Shifra. And the other was named Pua. And if I had two little bitty dogs, like like Shih Tzus, no disrespect, I would call one of them Shifra and the other Pua. I would do that because those are cool names for little bitty dogs. Like if I had a Great Dane, I wouldn't call him Shifra. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. And he said, 
Pharaoh did. When you are helping the, the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool or the stones or the low bricks as they, as they would literally deliver their children into these midwives' arms. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, uh, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, uh, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? So apparently they found out about it because it's like, okay, nothing is happening to their population, uh, Mr. Pharaoh. Verse 19, And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. They're lying. That's not true. They're telling a story to Pharaoh. Let me ask you this question. Is that right or is that wrong? It's wrong. Doubting God to save you? Okay. They're lying to Pharaoh. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it is. But here's how God responds. Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives. Are you saying it's okay to lie? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God was good to the midwives because they were saving babies. And if it comes to telling the truth, that would lead to the death of others? I don't know the answer to that. All I'm saying is it says God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became not just mighty, but now very mighty. It came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them, Uh, families. So now the midwives ain't just catching everybody else's babies. Now someone's catching their babies. God's blessing them. Okay? We'll talk about that more in a minute. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter uh, you are to keep alive. And I think that the context of that is the Hebrews. I, I think that's the context, verse 22. Okay. Everybody say extinction. Okay. Listen to this. Satan will, until his extinction... Be at war with the seed of the woman. Who is the seed of the woman? It's that nation, that group, that people that will follow God and and follow Christ. That's the seed of the woman. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, it was said that that the, the serpent, Satan, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But that seed, Jesus, would crush the head of Satan. Okay, and so when you get crucified, your heel gets bruised. It was a picture of the cross. And when Christ died and rose from the dead, Satan was doomed. His head was crushed. That's it. You don't get a fake head. When your head is crushed, that's it. It's not like an arm or a foot or something. Okay? But Satan will, until his extinction, be at war with the seed of the woman. And that plays out in what we've already seen, where Cain killed Abel. Cain's sacrifice was not pleasing to God. Abel's was. So he got envious and he killed his brother. 
we'll look in the future and we'll see Saul trying to kill King David. In the book of Esther, a man named Haman tries to exterminate the entire Jewish race. He was a forerunner of Hitler who tried to destroy all the Jews in, uh, in Europe. Uh, whether that's the boys in Bethlehem that Herod tries to kill because he's trying to kill Jesus, whether that's the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts or the crucifying of Christ, or today in Islam where they will not even recognize Israel as a state. And their goal is to destroy Israel. And in the end of the end times, that's going to be a major war, I promise you. That's going to be, that's, it's all going to be about Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount. And that will not go away because Satan knows there's going to be a revival in the nation of Israel one day. And so he wants to exterminate them, and Hitler couldn't do it. And Stalin tried to do it and couldn't do it. Set up a plan to do it, but died the night before, according to an eyewitness. And, of course, you have the persecution that happens in the church today, where more Christians in the last hundred years have died for the faith than all of church history, including the Roman Colosseum. And so what's Satan trying to do? He's at war with the seed of the woman. And you know what? He's at war with you. He's at war with you. And his goal was to take you out. But it's too late because you came to know Jesus. You bent the knee to Jesus. You acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. Now Satan can't have you. It's too late. He can't have you. Your name's written in the book of life. You are, you know, he can, he can mess with you. He can torment you. He can do whatever, but he cannot have you. Can you say amen to that? But for sure, for sure, notice that he wanted to kill all the boys. Why the boys? For a number of reasons, obvious. If you have just a bunch of women and no boys, you're not going to have any kids. But I think it's deeper than that. Because I believe that today Satan is still at war with men and boys, but men. In my own life, 41 years old, my father died. Cirrhosis of the liver. Stone cold alcoholic. Okay, you can blame it on the Korean War and two tours of duty at Vietnam. That's a good place to start. But it was beyond that. How many fatherless, fatherless children are, are growing up in America? How many, how many young men do not know how to love a woman the appropriate way because they've never seen it from their father? How many young men... And young women, uh, don't grow up knowing the love of Christ because it wasn't modeled in a man in the home. All this nonsense about two mommies and two daddies is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. A woman cannot teach a boy how to be a man because that's not taught, that's caught. And it comes from another man. You're going to end up raising a bunch of confused children. Listen, men, you're the bullseye. Your lifespan used to be seven years. Now it's five years less than that of women. Suicide is the eighth leading cause of death for males. Men are more than four times as likely to die from suicide. In 2010, men were responsible for four out of every five DUIs. And although 11% of the population is made up of males, 
between the ages of 21 and 34, that high-risk group was responsible for 32% of all drunk drivings. Men are 543% more likely to look at pornography than females. 68% of young men said they, look, they looked at porn at least once a week, and that is destruction. It is. Here's the plan that Satan has. Destroy a man, and there's a strong likelihood you'll destroy a family. It's true. It's true. You want to know why so many young boys are running around, and they're undisciplined, and they're, and they're involved, and who knows what? It's because they never had a father at home, or at least a strong male figure somewhere. As a young boy who grew up without a father, and I give mad props to single moms that are trying to do it all and getting it done. I mean, we were not without, and my mom, she suffers the physical consequences of working seven days a week for years getting it done. But I know the vacuum I had in my heart. And I know the vulnerability that I had, too. You destroy a man, and there's a high likelihood you'll destroy a family. Because it falls on grandmas and moms, maybe granddads. You know, grandparents make great grandparents, but not always the best parents. (laughs) God bless them, (laughs) right? You did what? What are you eating? No, 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 you know. How about children? Here he tries to exterminate the young boys, but children have always been on Satan's chopping block. You know, there's approximately 1.21 million abortions every year in America. And I don't even begin to understand the complexities involved in some of those. And I'm not judging. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Not at all. Because I remember as a non-believer, to me, abortion wouldn't, wouldn't have meant anything. Uh, no, it, it, didn't, it wouldn't have meant a thing to me. There has been a steady decline in abortion since 1980. Each year, 2% of all women between 15 and 44 have an abortion. And listen, of the, four, of the women ab- obtaining abortions in any given year, 47% have had at least one previous abortion. By the age of 45, one-third of American women will have had at least one abortion by the age of 45. And wonderful, industrious America, we have the highest abortion rate of 19.4 per thousand of any Western industrialized nation. But you know what? That's changing. And there's grace for that. And there's healing for men and women. Because, you know, certainly the children are forgotten victims, but sometimes so are the men. Because sometimes it's not their desire for that. But the women's liberation movement has told women that the ultimate control you have is whether or not you keep a life or kill it. They bought into the lie. There's healing for that. You know Roe versus Wade, right? You know the famous landmark case that legalized abortion in America? You know that the woman, Roe, you know, she's now a born-again believer. See, God just does that. God just does that. God just changes people. I mean, who would have thought that? Anyway, anyway, there is grace and mercy for that at the cross, even that. So the midwives, they disobey authority, and that's okay. 
when we're asked to disobey God's word. They disobey authority, but that's okay when we're asked to disobey God's word. The Bible is full of examples of those who are willing to sacrifice their life for the sake of others. Esther, I'm going to the king, and if I perish, I perish. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. And it's like, king, whatever you got to do, bring it. Daniel refused to not pray three times a day facing Jerusalem with his windows open. There's a law that says you can't pray. You know what? I got to pray. You have to do what you have to do. And he faced the lions uh, uh, as a result of it. Peter and the apostles said this to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than man. Jesus didn't always follow the laws. (laughs) I mean, especially the religious laws that said you can't heal on the Sabbath or you can't do this on the Sabbath. Jesus was like, no, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Anyway, Ecclesiastes 8.12 says, it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. See, I believe ultimately these Hebrew midwives, uh, whether, they, whether them lying to these people was right or wrong, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I also know that God seemed to bless them because, because they put their life at risk to save those babies. And I think God's okay with that. God's okay with that. He's okay with that. And he blessed them. Hebrews 6 says this, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. All right. Well, when times get rough, and it's looking pretty bad right here, I mean, they're, they're hanging on by a thread, and God's, remember, he's got the next step in mind. God's about to do something. And so while Pharaoh wants to kill all the boys, God puts it in the hearts of the midwives to not do that. And then they tell a story about it. And so Pharaoh happens to look at the population numbers and say, what's happening with our extermination project? And they're like, dude, it ain't happening, man. We don't know what to do. And so maybe he's got something else up his sleeve, but God's way ahead of him. And so there's a baby boy who's about to be born, and his name is Moses. Because while Pharaoh is trying to exterminate the boys, God raises up a boy who's going to deliver his people. Because he's way ahead. And the sequence of events that happens next is crazy. But you have to come back next week for that. Or you could read it on your own, I suppose. Ah. Uh, You know, God's a forgiving God. God's a God of redemption. He restores things that the enemy's taken. He restored things in my life that the enemy took. Check that. The enemy didn't take it. I gave it to him. He didn't take nothing from me. I gave it to him. I willingly gave it. And would have gave more if Christ hadn't intervened in my life. But there's forgiveness. There's redemption. And... You be the man that God wants you to be today. You be the woman that God wants you to be today. And all that busted stuff that's a part of your past, all those things that you wish you could do, hey, 
man, it would be awesome if we could do a do-over. Are you kidding me? I mean, I with knowledge. If I'm going to do a do-over, I'm going to know what I know now. But you don't get that. And so you learn from that, and you fall in his arms, and you trust in him for today, and then you believe that he'll make right busted relationships. Uh, you know, my sister is, is a caretaker for my mother. And you know what? I promise you, I would never believe that would have happened. When my mom had her stroke and was unable to care for herself, and my sister on the phone said, I'm coming to take care of mom. I said, no, you're not. But God has a way. <laughs> God has a way. God restored that relationship. And my relationship with my sister, I have a relationship with my sister like I've never had in my whole life. And that's just been the last three years. Because prior to that, I was waiting on the phone call, folks. Officer so-and-so, do you know a Claudia Box? Gonzalez. Yes, I do. I was waiting on that call. But it's too late now. It's too late. Can't have her now. She's in the kingdom. And that's what God does. God renews and restores. And he takes those things that have been evil and he makes them good. Amen? And that's if you hold on to him. But you got to reach out to him. You got to reach out to him. Father, in the name of Jesus, man, Exodus. Woo! Thank you for your word, God. God, strengthen your people. Lord, you know, you know, Lord, we are a bunch of failures. <laughs> we, we're people who have relationally messed up. We've messed up morally. God, we've distanced ourselves from you. We, we're rebellious. We, we're a rebellious lot. We know we are. And your word tells us the truth. He said, yeah. But then you say you love us. And then you say you have a plan for us. And then you say that you will restore and renew those things that have been broken in our lives, first in us and then in our relationships with others. Lord, I pray for any man here that may have a son or a daughter out there somewhere, and he may be heaped with guilt right now. But, Lord, you can restore those relationships, and you can bring life into that which is dead. Lord, I pray for any women in here that may have a busted relationship with a son or a daughter somewhere or a parent. And I pray, God, that you will restore those relationships and bring healing. Lord, they say that a bone that's broken grows stronger than it was before it was broken. Lord, restore relationships in this place. But most of all, God, would you just nudge us and draw us closer to you? Lord, some of us just need a little gentle nudge. Some of us need a push. <laughs> but what, and as a friend of mine said, some of us need a swift kick in the pants. But, Lord, it's all by your grace and by your mercy, and it's all out of love. So we thank you. We're excited about your word, God. And, Lord, would you, would you put something in us that would, would cause us to be like those midwives and be fierce in our fear for you? Because, Lord, you said that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of strength. So, God, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for, for forgiving us, God, and restoring us and renewing us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Cool.